of uh, either tag team this or we, we could flip the weeks. One would be... Uh, I think I got it going here. Okay, let me uh, open up with a word of prayer. Well, Father God, we just... Uh, we come before you and we just love you so much and we just worship you. Father, I thank you for uh, this great privilege that we have just to be um, in your presence and to be in the fellowship of your word and to be in the fellowship of your saints. Uh, Father, there's just no greater joy than to be um, students of your word. And Father, I pray your spirit uh, will just guide us today in our discussion. And Lord, we uh, pray with just great uh, excitement for just the, the changes that we're seeing in our body. And uh, Lord, I, I also see uh, the importance of even the message today as in our study as it relates to our church and Father, the, the, just the changes that are occurring and some of the key fundamentals, Father, that uh, you've instructed us in your word as, your, as the church and our responsibilities individually, but also to our leaders. And so I just pray as your spirit will just open our hearts and minds today to your word and we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome again and good morning. I wanted to... Uh, um, Mark and I were thinking exactly the same thing this morning very, very early as far as kind of looking ahead at our schedules uh, that we have left and how we do bring um, closure to First Peter. And I, I kind of wanted to tell you where we're at in this study and what's ahead for us is we're in this last section of First Peter, verse, starting back in chapter 4, verse 7 through 5.11, and then closing with the last uh, benediction and closing verses in uh, 12 to 14, in this remembrance of our living hope. And I wanted to kind of give us just this uh, a sandwich effect here of what we've been looking at, because it's, I've, I've inserted... Um, took liberty to insert today uh, something that I wanted to work into it. We spent a great deal of time, a number of weeks, looking at our approach to suffering in chapters 4, 12, to 19. And I'm going to bridge back to it today briefly. And then the expectations that Mark has been covering for several weeks as it relates to the shepherds during suffering at the beginning of chapter 5, verses 4. What is ahead for us in verses 5 through 11 is these victorious outcomes, we'll call it, with respect to how, when you navigate through suffering, biblically, what does it look like? And what are some of the key fundamentals um, that are, we'll call them the basics, that are necessary in order to do that? In other words, in order to to navigate through suffering biblically, what are some of the, the key um, fundamentals, and so we'll spend a number of weeks looking at that. But I wanted to to bridge something because last week I was prepared to say a little bit more about uh, kind of do a back end of this uh, aspect of the shepherds, and so stepping back for a moment is that I believe that I want to talk a little bit about some qualities, three specific things or we'll call them three uh, fundamentals, that are represented in these first several verses that I believe point to us as far as what does a healthy church look like. And you know, um, when I was going back through, you always go back and you read um, the verses. And so as I was going back and reading through uh, chapter 5, just reading the first, for example, the first six verses or first seven verses of that, I'm, uh, who would have thought, I guess, is kind of my, here's where my head went. Who would have thought, do you have that clicker, by the way? Who would have thought that, um, who would have thought that Peter would have penned these words to the leaders of the churches? Okay? So, here is my thoughts. Thank you, sir. Let this catch up. There we go. So, who would have thought? And, and, And what, where I was going with was, it was absolutely um, the right person. But yet, here was just some thoughts. And you know, when we started this whole study, we had this this opening introduction to Peter as the author. And Peter was the one 
he would literally he was arguing with and literally rebuked the Lord himself with respect to the coming suffering. Remember that? It was no, no, no. It was Peter amongst the other disciples that was arguing amongst themselves that who was the greatest. And it was from the standpoint of even in the kingdom itself. And it was Peter, along with some of the other disciples, at the very Passover dinner that rebuked the Lord for being a servant. And so, when you think about it, um, it's very appropriate. See, you kind of chuckle for a second to think of, like, who are you to, to exhort these leaders? And I think it is, he is the perfect person. And so, did he remember... Okay, and just go with me on this. Just what, did he remember some of these things? In other words, what we studied was in First Peter five two. You can see it there where it says that shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. When he gets this exhortation to, that he is giving to these elders to shepherd the flock, First Peter five two, did he remember? And Mark touched on this too. But did he remember those three statements that Jesus gave when he said in John chapter 21, he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, I do, Lord. Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Shepherd my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Did he remember? And so when Peter would make this statement to those elders, shepherd the flock, I think he remembered those three very convicting, penetrating statements from our Lord. When he says in verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, he says to don't lord it over them. Not, not to lord it over in 5.3. Did he remember? Did he remember when Jesus himself in chapter 20 of verse 25 and 28 say, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their, and their great men exercise authority of them. It is not this way among you. Did he remember to give that same exhortation to these elders to not lord it over them? And in verse 5, verse 6, uh, chapter 5, verse 5, which we'll get to, where he says to clothe yourselves with all humility. And in John chapter 13, verse 4, did he have this image in his head where he saw the Lord take a towel, and he girded himself. John chapter 13, verse 4. I believe he remembered. And so, it is fitting. It is fitting, I believe, for this man that we would all agree is a changed man. He is totally changed. From his perspectives that we saw in his the, the narrowness of his mind, And so therefore, as we look at this and we go forward with it from the standpoint of looking at this passage and the exhortations and all of the things that Mark had laid out in here, is I want to bridge it. I want to bridge it because when we look at this passage, when we look at the passage itself, we've gone through verse by verse from verses 1 through 4. And today we're going to have this verse in here that I'm going to go both ways with it. In other words, in this picture right here, is that we're going to take verse 5 and we're going to try to connect it and bridge it to the previous verses. But also, verse 5 is also going to be the application verse for us. In other words, it bridges to elders and then it also bridges us to all. It says to all. In other words, to those. And it would follow to that. And so this is really the objective today as we kind of look at that is how we, we can tie this together. You know, um, we're seeing a lot of new people come into our church, aren't we? <laughs> Great testimony example here in Nathan. And you know, I don't know about you, but I've interacted with them, uh, many of them. And just to say, uh, it seems like every single week I've often you know, come up to someone and say, well, hi, are you new to the church? Yep, been here for a couple of weeks. Or you feel really bad when they say, well, I've been here for eight months. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever heard, and what they're saying is, well, we know we're looking for a church, or, you know, God is just, and so, I don't know if you ever thought about, you know, what is it? What is it that makes a good church? What are those qualities that we would say that makes up a good church? What are your thoughts? 
Amen to that. <laughs> but they are our church also in the Bible and shout things for ourselves. Not that we blindly follow the leaders. We we have to be diligent. Otherwise, you get complacent. You're constantly being bombarded. Maybe. Yeah. In fact, let me let me take it. Backtrack if I could, just reverse that for a second, and let's replace the word good with a healthy. In other words, what does a healthy church look like? Is we have people that are looking for a church, you know, what are they specifically looking for? I, I, I say amen again to what Mick said, because I think that from the standpoint, is it a church word-centered? Is, is it being taught from the pulpit? And is the body being equipped in its to how to study and so they know so that we know as well. Those are all, I think, mutual in, in respect in many ways. Other thoughts? Yeah, just just go ahead. Okay. Because I know when we were looking for a church, some of them that it didn't seem like I know it doesn't make any sense. It didn't seem like God was their number one priority. I know I don't know how to explain it, but Okay. I would say truth and love really important, but also there needs to be a sense of that we are still, we still have our sin nature, I mean, we still sin, and this, the church should be different from the world into how it's handled, and it, you know, it should be a place. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but Timothy did something that was not good, and so a pastor called her at work, and just how the whole process kind of played itself out. I mean, Timothy was scared, he had to apologize to six people, and it's like, I don't know if they're going to forgive me, I said, that's not... You have to just apologize no matter what. And so, um, they all forgave him. And it was, I mean, you could just feel this weight mm-hmm. lift off of him. It was just a beautiful example of. Okay. Mark, you were going to. Uh, I think, but I think a couple things come to mind, bosses. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you've hit uh, just some really key things. And what I'm going to, I think what I'm going to try to poke at from seeing these verses here is that what I would say is, is that especially important then is that that is the responsibilities of the leadership itself that upholds those very things that you've mentioned. In other words, and I believe that that is really how I'm going to bridge this. In other words, these fundamentals that are really at the heart of a healthy church is the shepherding. It is the very shepherding that Mark went through Okay, that is, it is not a hireling relationship. <laughs> it is a shepherd's relationship. And so it is a pastor that is literally shepherding this flock, which obviously is reflected in this commitment to the Word. It is there, I totally agree with you, Mark, it is this, the, the cross is at the center of the, the Christian life of the leadership, it is the, the center of the, the body itself. The second is submission. It is submissions to its leadership. An indication of a healthy church that he, I believe is here is that as we transition this, is that he's making this exhortation to these leaders, but how effective are strong leaders without followers? <laughs> They don't. It's totally ineffective, right? And so there, there must be followers. And so therefore, there are responsibilities that Peter is going to specifically again come back to, which is this whole theme of submission again. I think you hit on that, Mark. And lastly, it's the other thing that was mentioned is humility. And so when we look at the, these key fundamentals of the healthy church, and then using this verse as a transition, it is shepherding, submission, and humility. It's three fundamental qualities. And so our objective in this part of the study here is that what does God wants to learn? That in a healthy church, the elders will shepherd, the flock will submit, all mutually in a spirit of humility. Why? Because suffering will come and it will test the very foundations and the strength of that church. And that's really what I wanted to segue into as we kind of look at. And briefly, I wanted to hit on some of the key things in in sort of a a very quick summary of the things that Mark had been covering for the past several weeks, but to to, to kind of connect it to this healthy church 
perspective. That in a healthy church, the elders will shepherd the flock. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Let's just take for a moment and let's just read again these first five verses of 1 Peter chapter 5 to get us back going through here and that we can quickly go through some of these examples here. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. For I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will read the unfading crown of glory. Younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the praise to the humble. You see how, see how the first part of this, it, it, he's, he's directing it specifically to the elders, but then in verse 5, you see the all in there. That's the transition verse, and what I was talking about in that previous is that we're going we're to go both ways today, both to the, going back to the summary of the leadership, but then the importance of that as it looks at what does this healthy church look like, to the all that will follow. And then as we segue into next week, it starts to drill down specifically into some of those fundamentals that must be the basics, not, not only for elders, but for all as well. And so as Mark covered this last week, but just so that we can kind of get some different terms to this, the requirement of shepherding is a close personal experience with Christ. Now what does that mean? In verses Verse 1, is it's focusing on the sufferings of Christ in verse 1. As a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Mark, you said it right. It is exactly, it's the, it's the cross. It's the cross at the center of the Christian life. And as an elder, is that elder living by that cross daily and helping others to do so. Right? The second focus of this personal experience with Christ is the focusing on the glory. And this is what makes that elder live in holiness and hope in light of Christ's coming. And so it is then out of this, this outflow or overflow of these personal experiences of the cross of Christ, His future coming, this is what the man looks like that would minister for Christ. In other words, these personal experiences. The responsibility of shepherding is to exercise oversight with the right attitude. And Mark covered in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Serving as overseers, not by compulsion. In other words, not by duty. <laughs> Just going to re- rephrase that. Put it. It's not a job. I have to. It is not duty, but out of delight. This is the willingly, the willingness aspect of it. And it also says in there that it is by calling, not by compulsion, but willing for, but not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Nor as being lords of those entrusted, but being examples to the flock and when Christ the shepherd appears. This is this calling that we have. And so it is not also in verse 2 there, it's not to make money, but rather to serve God with zeal. Responsibilities of shepherding is to not exercise oversight, but you must have it with the right attitude. Delight and in calling as opposed to duty and not with the wrong motives of the sort of gain that was referenced in chapter 5, verse 2. In chapter th- uh, verse 3, it says, Remember that the flock belongs to God, and lead by example. Lead by example, verse 3. Not as being lords, but being examples to the flock. It is God's flock. And as we close on that section from last week, the reward is the unfading crown of glory, 5, verse 4. And that we are to remember that we are only these under-shepherds accountable to the chief shepherd, to the chief. So, here's the, the bridge on this. And so what I wanted to get at, as it relates specifically to our church, forward, backwards, to all churches, forward, backwards, present. In other words, what are the struggles within the churches itself? And to answer this question is, is why do elders suffer? Why do elders and leaders in the church suffer? One must assume that Peter's exhortation to the elders and the younger men in verse 5, in this, in this text, are related to his teachings on the suffering in the immediate preceding verses. Remember, when I, we looked at that uh, at, at passage, I'm not, I hate to go all the way back, I'm sorry, forgive me, here. 
But see, when you when we see this therefore in here for the exhortation of the elders, you go backwards. In other words, you look at the preceding verses. And so clearly those were verses that spoke specifically about the sufferings of the church, individuals. And so as we go forward with this and asking this question is that he's looking at the preceding verses. And so is there a relationship between leadership and suffering? The answer is yes. There's a direct relationship. Peter does not directly answer that for us. But from other biblical texts, we can find a close relationship between leadership and suffering. And that's what I thought we would spend some time in looking at in the Bible, examples of those biblical supports. The fact is is that there is a direct relationship between leaders and their suffering within the body itself. The first one, he feels, why does Peter feel as though that he needs to um, exhort the elders? I believe he needs to do that to remind them of their ministry. <laughs> Going back to chapter 4, verse 12, says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery ordeal which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. The fire ordeal in chapter 4, verse 12, is a judgment from God that begins with the house of God. The verse says this. Look closely at it again. To the extent that you partake of the Christ's suffering, that when you, the glory is revealed, you, will, you will, may also be glad. Skip on down to verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do who do not obey the gospel of God? Question. So I want to I dig into this one, if we could, for a minute, because I believe that in the context of this, is that this fire ordeal is that he is, he is writing this letter to these persecuted believers, but he's also directing it to some of those leaders in the church itself and focusing on their ministry. In other words, if we are to navigate through suffering... Who is our example? Christ. Who then is at the next level? It's the local leaders. In other words, the, the navigating part of this thing through is that we're going to seek those examples. Christ is that example for us, but who's going to, who's going to walk us through that? And I believe that we see in scriptures so often that it is the very leaders themselves that go through that fiery ordeal <laughs> defined as the challenges, suffering in ministry, it describes what the ministry is of the elder. Mark. Just to build on that, I mean, his fellow elders about everything to do with the motive. That's what he's I've never really thought about this before, but when, when we're at verse 12, beloved, that's not speaking directly to the elders, right? That's to the whole group. Am I understanding that? Yes. And when he talks about the household of God in verse 17, that's also the Whole group of believers, right? He is. So I'm just jumping ahead. No, no, no. Yeah, he is. I, he is talking to us because what he's saying is that's like in the context of here is, is that what we know is is the promise is, is that as believers we will suffer. We've looked at all those verses, okay? That's starting with us first, okay? Us being us being believers. believers. Okay. okay, but now what I'm gonna I want to get at is why did he choose that verse to describe that, okay? And that's where I go with this. It's because in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 to 6, here's the verse, let's look at it. Just take a second, you can read it up here. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the, of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike. Do not let... Your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women, but do not touch any man or, or on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. Okay, the context of this passage, it is about repentance. Okay, so I don't want to make a connection to say is that these are... Because this is Ezekiel's vision. Okay, he gets this vision, and what this vision is is that God sends his messengers to punish Israel, the unrepentant 
Israel for the abominations of their sin. The angel puts this mark on the forehead and says, anybody that has this mark on the forehead, you spare. Because it says that they have, or is it, they moan and they sigh and they groan over all the abominations. What does that mean? It is repentance. Okay? So what he is doing then is that he directs these executioners to start with, to begin at the sanctuary. Whenever you see in Scripture, and that's where the bridge I'm going to make on this, when, when he refers to the house of God, it, re, it refers to the temple. Okay, That's in the context of it. So Peter's use of this, I believe, is that he is like using that as this example, is, is that it's the opposite in meaning because these elders were unrepentant. Okay? Some would be spared, obviously, they had this mark, but it is this judgment. And so it is this repentant sinner that is spared. Okay? So when it refers to this household of God. And now you go forward to verse 17. For it's a time for judgment to begin with the household of God. There is a similar type of understanding that they would get it. Because they knew, they knew Old Testament scripture. And so it was like this example he was saying is, is that like, okay, we're all saved. But I'm going to tell you right now, because he's going to transition us to, this, to Satan next. And he said he's going to attack the household of God first. It's going to begin with that. The judgment in First Peter is the persecution from the enemy. It's, the, it's coming. Because this transition, I believe, he has a great emphasis in the verses that follow on Satan as this prowling, vicious, devourous lion to destroy. And so, therefore... The connection, I'm, I'm just trying to understand. In other words, why did Peter use that verse of understanding? When he, and so therefore, what does it really mean by that, that the judgment begins with the house of God? We understand it in the context of us as believers. But also a lesson for us to recognize that is that where is Satan going to attack a church? In the leadership. It's going to be in the elders of the church. It's going to be in that. This is exactly... Because when you go back, it says to start with the elders. A lot of parallels in this, just between you know, the husband and wife, you know, leaders of a family, leaders of the church. I love the Hebrews passage too, thirteen, where it talks about the accountability that falls to those leaders too. And if you think about the, that, as, the, even the importance of that accountability, so therefore that much more to attack that, attack the one that's accountable to take them all down. Then, so the first. To go back here is that this it starts with this judgment. It starts, I believe, with this focus on the leadership, elders. And while I just want to make sure we all understand the differences in those verses, he doesn't reference it as it, but yet trying to understand what he refers to those leaders themselves, which were accountable in that vision, in Ezekiel's vision. The, the leaders were accountable to judgment. Judgment for us is the persecution that we encounter. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter because what is what we're going to get at here, in fact, we can go right to the next one, it is the sin, sinful natures that rebel against God and resist God's leaders. Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, may I say something about this verse 17? Yeah. I mean, it could be the oven where he says, body being part, and then we should die. Judgment. It, it, it has a lot of all of that. I mean, we, we look at this whole back end of First Peter's taking us to the future hope, you know, which is that's, that's judgment. Judgment is coming in that, so that is that's future look. But it also contextually was the very fact of, of Nero just being cut loose. With you haven't seen anything yet. In other words, the tough the tough stuff is yet to come very soon here, in the context of this. They can relate also to, like what you were saying, is that this brokenness that is reflected in this Ezekiel passage of just sort of this, um, the non-repentant and pride. Because uh, and one of the things we'll get at is you look at 
what is really at, at the core is that within this sinful nature, there is this constant rebelling against God. And, and it, if, if we can just kind of look at some of these examples, um, go, with, go with me to Exodus 16 for a second. Exodus 16, verses 7 and 8. Okay, then uh, verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Now here's the leaders, okay? So within here you have the, these complaints. You know, Go over again in 7, 17 verse 2. And all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses. They challenged him and said, Give us water that we may drink. And so Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you, why do you tempt the Lord? Now, I want you to think about something. Is that, and there are so many examples, right, where we can go through in, in Exodus, especially of Israel, right? At every turn, they were complaining. At every single turn, they were complaining. But I want to remind you and them of something. This goes back to, to Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, by the way. This is what it said. And the Lord went before them, Israel, by day in a pillar of cloud and at night by a, by a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of the cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So, put in the context of the complaint, what the fact is is that you didn't quite notice this huge pillar by day and by night of fire. Didn't quite notice that. It's just been there every day, but so therefore they're ripping on leadership. You know, we went this far, we came to a dead end, and there's no water. I mean, come on, Moses. Did you not? GPS, you know, come on. Is there is this, the sin nature itself is rebelling against God and thus resists God's leaders. It just, it, we see it at the very, very onset of Scripture, and it, it just permeates throughout. Elders are not necessarily appointed democratically, nor do they rule democratically. Numbers 16, 1 to 50, this is this where these Levites, they challenge uh, Aaron. You know, in other words, his, that he was this appointed one. Ultimately, elders are divinely appointed, Acts 20, 28, and thus are accountable to God, Hebrews. Acts 20, 28 says this, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. These are divine appointments as opposed to some type of voting democratic process itself. Acts 20.28 In Hebrews 13.17, I mentioned that earlier, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. The elders, therefore, represent the church. Congregation uh, do not, as elected officials, like you would like any other type of official that would have a constituency, but they represent God and act according to, to the directives of His Word, which, at times as we know, Decisions are not always popular. Why do elders suffer? Because of sin, the sin nature itself. Also because these divine elders that were appointed by God, if they stay the course to God's course in His plan, it will be resisted. And it will not be the popular right. An example would be is that they, they're telling Moses, this is not a good idea. Not a good idea. Why do elders suffer? Because they lead. <laughs> elders get the blame when things seem to go wrong, things are considered wrong, when either commitment, self-denial, rebuke are required, or when suffering or adversity 
are encountered. Israel grumbled at every little difficulty and grasped for every chance to indulge themselves. 1 Corinthians 9, it's worth a look. 1 Corinthians 9, i got some other verses there, but let's, go, let's take a look at that one. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 24, and it goes to 10.13. I, I, this is... This goes back to this unfading crown, you know, where you see Paul's, what he is striving towards, you know, I, that I do not know that those who run or race all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run this not with uncertainty, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now here are these Old Testament examples. And he's going back to Israel again. Okay, So Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. There it is again. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. But with most of them, God was not pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things, here they are, became our examples to the intent that we should not have all of these the sin. Not lusting after evil things. Do not become idolaters. As in written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play, nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. So all these things, in verse 11, all of these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our abomination, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Total humility. We see through this. And so... As we look at this, this grumbling we see here is that it, it points us as examples of all of the what motivates that that grumbling. What is the object object of that grumbling? It is something falling into here. It's not it's not pleasant for the moment. It is suffering itself. Could also then man itself manifest itself as a wrong response to the suffering itself. Why do elders suffer? Yes. What I love about that is, you know, that's, a, that's they're using those examples and those, let's say, those Old Testament examples. They're the same today in the church. They're no different. Christian leaders appear to be weak, ineffective, and certainly unimpressive because God chooses the foolish things to, to confound the wise. Some of these, this is where. Um, you know, in Acts, we kind of this is where Peter. Remember, they they, they kind of just questioned. Uh, it's like a slam, and Peter and John, chapter four of Acts, he goes like this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained, they marveled. Our culture today, they place this, they elevate these spiritual leaders to this place of of status. And that's exactly the opposite. So therefore, the suffering of this is what gets in the way. Um, Some of these other examples here where it simply just talks about, this is this passage on that God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. But that could also just be said for Christians, right? I mean, God chooses the the people we might choose to follow. God, if this person became a Christian, it could have such a good impact for you. But... Oftentimes, do you, know, do you know what I'm saying? And I, I, I'm, I'm just having a hard time following this. I'm sorry. I'm starting to think delineate between where the leaders and where it's Christians. I'm just having a hard time understanding. I, I would say this, that there's no difference because what I would tell you is that when we're teaching on First Timothy three or, or Titus on those qualifications, tell me that they, most of those all the same qualities should not be what we all aspire to those same qualities. But clearly, God does call specifically leaders, and so therefore, that's okay to take these, but I'm saying is, is that why do, why do churches have problems? Why are churches unhealthy? They're unhealthy because there is shepherds that don't shepherd. The body is not submissive. 
And there's no humility. So when you take those three qualities, I'm breaking it down to say, well, why would someone not follow this elder here? Because they're going like, well, gosh, you know, he's just a, he's just a carpenter. You know, he's not a, I mean, he's not a big business guy. He doesn't, he's not a smart person. That's the culture that we're here. One of the questions I had later on in here, I'm saying, is that in America today, this is, it's like Satan has got it going in the church. So that's, are you with me on, from the standpoint, I don't want to lose you on this, because I am focused specifically on the elder aspect of it, because I'm bridging. And the bridging of this is going to take us right to, like almost this staccato of fundamentals, I call them the basics, to you as an individual believer. So what Peter is saying is, is that I'm starting with these leaders. Exhortation here first. Then he goes to all in verse 5. Now it's you and I. So that he's creating the separation, clearly for us. We've always, I've always believed in saying like, okay, we're all, you look at those qualities and the, those qualifications of the elder. That, you know, now, other than being the husband of one wife for a woman, <laughs> it, it is all of the very qualities that would be, you know, we'd all reflect we see in Christ, and it's all of our desire to be Christ-like in all those. So your, your job as a leader, too, saying this first to leaders, and your job is to raise up new leaders in the church, whether it be teaching Sunday school or kids, or like you said, in your own family. It, it, all these are applicable to all Christians because we're all growing in responsibility. Absolutely. <clears throat> because of the foolish things and, and the methods, because they employ or they refuse to employ. And in these passages, this was the the examples of passages for time's sake. I won't go through all of them. These are the passages that talk about the where Paul would say is that, you know, I don't have really persuasive words to tell you. All that I know is I know Christ and Christ crucified. <laughs> you know, it's that simple. And so he what he he contrasts in here. And so therefore, many times we challenge the leaders. Because it's not like, eh, you know, eh, I don't know if I'm convinced about that. And I, I, I'm, again, it's more of the modern. Contextually, what Paul was saying at this point in his exhortation to the, the churches was that they were, in, uh, they were being attacked by these false teachers that their M.O. was to counter what Paul was about. They were trying to rip Paul for what his message was, and so they kept saying, well, let me give you a little better, let me persuade you, persuasive words, or smooth talking, we'll call it, that type of thing. Because of their convictions, you almost have to read all of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul just kept saying, like in 1 Corinthians 9, is that he gives out, you know, in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, he like lists all of these, um, these various limitations with respect to Christian liberty. And so in chapter 9, he simply is just saying, this is how I, I lived him. In other words, he followed his convictions. Is really, And so the, when you go through chapter 9, like Paul's answer rhetorically is like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that he fulfilled these things. And so the convictions themselves, that elder, that leader, follows the convictions of, of the Holy Spirit's work in his heart, will be resisted again by the general populace. They also do not commend themselves. Second Corinthians 3, 1. You can go through a lot of these passages uh, uh, on these, but we try to look at ways that we kind of look at themselves is that um, any, any pastor elder that is commending himself, saying, you know, hey, I did really good today. That was really good. That's what brings the attack on that. And then it was somewhat ironic that... The suffering is this badge of Paul's ministry, and yet it's what caused many to reject him. Uh, Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read that because that was kind of an interesting contrast in that. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. I'm reading from the New King James. It says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident in my chains, are much more bold to speak 
the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether it is in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Do you see the contrast in verses 15 and 16 to 17? In other words, what Paul was talking about is that here he is in prison, and he, he talks about the effectiveness of his ministry in contrast to those who preach from envy and strife. They were jealous. They were trying to you know, counter Paul's preaching. In fact, it says that they preached Christ. Think about that. They were preaching Christ, but they, as Mark said earlier, it's like, well, what is the motivation? What motivates them? Their motivation was to discredit Paul and his ministry. They preach from selfish ambition, not sincerely. And so that in itself is, whoops, sorry, it's that this, Paul's ministry was at suffering, and yet it's what caused many to reject his apostleship to those that he just, we saw that were in the opposite, that were about self. Like Paul, it's not, it's not just that Paul's in prison and I'm prideful, and that he's in prison, so now I can, I've got, I'm a better preacher than Paul, I can win more converse than Paul. It wasn't just pride, like they were also actively kind of like... What I'm getting at is, um, just from the standpoint of sin, sin will rebel Christ, will, will reject Christ. It will re- and so, Paul's motives were pure. Mm-hmm. These pastors, their motives weren't pure at all. They were envy and strife, meaning that they hope that they pile on the chains and saying, you know what, uh, almost to, to the standpoint of like, this, it's like saying this. Hey, by the way, do you know why Paul's in prison, everybody? He's in prison because of his sin. That's punishment. <laughs> it, it is. And God knows that heart. And, and I think that from the standpoint of the importance of that being to the leader is that that's the examples. So if if there are problems in the heart of our leaders that are subjecting themselves or being influenced by Satan, and the, it's going to manifest itself um, in a very unhealthy results within the body, the church itself. In other words, if some of these, you know, you see that within the body itself, is that doesn't start with the leaders, and if Going back to the individuals, if we're not submitting to that, um, and if you got poor leaders to start with, and these are what well, this is what we're following, we got a bad situation going. Boys club, you know, like the junior high boys ministry with a brother named Jeff, who's the guy that when I was gone, I'd be somewhere that morning and come back to church, and he's the one or or where you always had your back in the ministry. Blessing it is as a leader to have like people who are with you who just love you and serve you, don't have this kind of like selfish ambition in their heart. You know, that's a great point because that really is perfect. Because in the other part of it is, is that we all, to one extent, we we do bear the burdens, and that's kind of what you're just describing here. But it, again, in Galatians six two talks about that. But leaders, and I like this Second Corinthians eleven twenty eight to twenty nine. I won't read it through, but it, there was a a reference in there where Paul talks about this greater part of the burden, and he describes it. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, he says. My deep concern for all the churches. It is this greater burden that falls to these elders, to the leaders themselves. And it's, you've just described an example of that. And lastly, as far as suffering, is the fact that there's sin in the church. Guess what? <laughs> we're, we're all sinners. There's sin in the church. And the responsibilities of the elders... Is there's this aspect of correction and discipline that must be upheld. It cannot be ignored within the body. Unfortunately, the facts behind many of those situations and actions are not a matter of public knowledge. In Matthew 18, very clearly, for example, in step one, it talks about them going individually to that person in private. That doesn't work. You take a couple of witnesses with you for the very purpose of restoring that believer. And so what happens? 
That's happening. I pray all the time. But within that itself is that pray God works in the heart, the Spirit works in the heart of those individuals that are in sin, that there is a brokenness, there is restoration, and so step three doesn't become the factor where you tell it to the church. And so what happens to the elder? The elder is involved on these first few levels, the first couple levels, step one and step two many times. Those elders may be part of those witnesses that are working through challenging situations of discipline and correction that are necessary. You know, it doesn't say to tell it to the church. If it gets resolved at step one or two, it's praise God for that. But you know what? We're we're a society that, you know, we're about full transparency, accountability. You know, um... I'll send a Freedom of Information Act request to the church. I'd like to see the details behind that that action, okay? That's not biblically accurate, but that's the culture that we live in today. It presents some great challenges for leaders. And so my objective under this section of this was to sort of piggyback on it because as I thought about um, what does it look like today is that certainly there are challenges. And I think we've seen that um, in our own body. And I am also going to say is, is that as we see it, I see it biblically is that there's also an exhortation as Peter is making to these elders that is also yet future. And so that does not exempt the village church of Bartlett <laughs> in any way. That much more of the reason to continue to pray for our leaders uh, for that. Any thoughts or comments on that? Final thoughts? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop at this point, and I'm going to because what it's going to where it's going to take us now into this next health next aspect of the healthy church is this aspect of submission that we see in, in verse five, where he, Peter transitions us now for next week into likewise it says you younger people submit. So we'll try to pick that up, and can that will, will then carry us forward um, to the all that we see from there. So probably a good stopping point, but uh, nevertheless. Okay, so more to come uh, next week, and we'll probably. Our hope is is that by uh, towards the end of November we should be trying to finish up on First Peter. So, Nick, could I ask you to close us in prayer, please? Great, thanks. Amen. Thank you.